May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Here we go again. It's Advent, the beginning of the year. Purple, pyramids, the wreath, the candles, lights on the Christmas tree, all of it. There's, there's a delight, I think, to the season of Advent. There's a, a kind of familiarity to the whole thing. Though the, the songs haven't been on the radio for a whole year, most of us know all of the words. Even though we know the struggle of getting the decorations out from those boxes in the attic, we still drag them down year after year. Advent is just sort of full to the brim with nostalgia, whether we want it or not. And yet in this place, in church, God beckons us back to the story, the old familiar story, but I don't know if we know it. Perhaps we come today expecting to hear about Mary and Joseph and Bethlehem, the lack of a room in the inn, but that's still a few weeks away. Instead, today, God beckons us to the story of Zechariah and the story of Elizabeth. Now, wonderfully, here at the church, our own Emily Nestor. Everybody know Emily? Most of you have seen her sing in the band for this service. Emily uh, writes of this story, this Advent story, in our devotion that we put out this year. If you didn't get one last week, please grab one after worship today. We have a devotion every day of Advent from today up until Christmas Day. And Emily wrote about the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, though her devotion isn't for another 10 days not till next Wednesday, so I'm going to give you a little spoiler warning. The first thing that Emily writes in the devotion is this. Elizabeth and Zechariah aren't typically emphasized in any of the Christmas stories we hear. She says, I was an adult before I ever read their story, but their story is important to Jesus's story because their story prepares his story. And Emily is exactly right. I mean, 100% on the mark. It is not a story that we tend to elevate, even at this most auspicious time of the year. But their story prepares us for this season of preparation that we are called to have. Zechariah is a priest. He's married to Elizabeth. They come from families of priests, tracing all the way back to Aaron, the brother of Moses, the brother of Superman. They, in their own ways, they are blameless and righteous before the Lord. They are the type of people who stick around after worship to help with the hanging of the greens. They are the kind of people who <clears throat> will slave away in the kitchen before and after an ecclesial potluck. They are the kind of people who show up for the first Sunday of Advent, but they have no kids. They have no kids. Now, to us moderns, that might seem like a superfluous detail, even in the church, because we know, particularly in the church, that we are not defined by our children, whether we have them or we don't. That's one of the things the gospel frees us from. It frees us from investing our future in children because God has given us all the time in the world, whether we have kids or not. But at the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth, children were understood as a blessing of God, and not just in the nice hallmark, I'll be home for Christmas. No, no not like that. Children were an economic incentive. People had children so that when they got older, their children would take care of them because no one took care of anyone unless they were in your family. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, I mean, Scripture tells us four times in this one section that they're getting on in years, and part of that problem is they don't have anyone that will help them. 
So they go about day to day, perhaps with whispers among their peers as to why they remain alone, but they endure, they keep going. And then one day, Zechariah, called to duty at the temple, he receives the distinction of going into the sanctuary of the Lord to offer incense all by himself. And when he goes in, the angel Gabriel appears at the right side of the altar, and Scripture says that Zechariah is terrified, petrified. Why? It's confusing to me. I mean, there's a better than good chance that any of us would be scared silly if an angel showed up. Have you ever read how angels are described in Scripture? They have like 18 eyes and 15 wings, and they're really, really frightening. But, but Zechariah? I mean... What does he think will happen? He is going into the holiest of holy places on the earth. Does he not bring any expectations of the God who shows up? Was he not aware of the great many times that the Lord sent messengers with impossible promises? Had he not lifted up the same psalms that we do about all that God can do? Why is he afraid? Well, maybe he's afraid because the angel is scary but also because of what the presence of the angel conveys. It means God is up to something. Stop cowering in the corner, Zechariah, Gabriel says. Don't be afraid. The Lord has heard your prayer. Your wife's going to get pregnant. You're going to have a son. I think John has a nice ring to it. He's going to change your lives completely, and not just your lives. Listen, many will rejoice at his birth because he is going to be the one to make ready a people prepared for God. And Zechariah says, let it be with me according to thy word, Gabriel. No, 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 no. That's what Mary says when Gabriel shows up. No, Zechariah's response to this prayer that he has been praying is, no way, can't happen, don't believe it, we're too old. I mean, come on, Zechariah. He's a priest. He, he's like me. He, more than anybody else, he should know that God, when God shows up, the rules about what can and can't happen, they no longer apply. I mean, this is the same God who splits open the seas, who helps the hungry, who defeats the darkness. This is the same God who has already, at least according to the scriptures, made six impossible births possible. But he can't believe it. Perhaps a better way to put it is he can't trust it. Gabriel says, Look, Zechariah, I've come with good news. The very news you've been praying for and you just can't handle it, so you won't be able to speak until this son of yours arrives. Zechariah must wait in silence until the good news arrives as his son, John, the one who will prepare the way of the Lord. He has to wait. Advent, of course, the season of patience, of waiting, not just for those presents that will start to pile up under the tree, but we wait. We wait for the baby born king in the manger, and we wait for the return of the king. We hope in the promise of all things being made new. Hope. That's the theme for the first Sunday of Advent. It's the Hope candle that I lit earlier in the service. Advent is all about hope. What do you hope for? What do you yearn for? What do you desire? Paul reminds us that hope doesn't do us any good if we only hope for that which we can see. 
if we only hope for that which is within the realm of possibility. Instead, Paul says, if we hope, we only hope for things we cannot fathom, things that seem impossible, like a barren couple waiting for a child. What do you hope for? You know, Advent, even with the candles and the lights and the songs, it actually invites us to reflect on how things are not as they ought to be. Now, I don't know if it's actually factually true, but it certainly seems to me as if there's more bad news during Advent than any other season of the year. I know for certain that I do more funerals during Advent than any other time of the year. So whether it's on the news at night or in our conversations out in the neighborhoods, something isn't right. Something is amiss. And the Bible refuses to let us pretend otherwise. Even with this aged couple who have done everything they were supposed to do, they are alone. They have no hope for tomorrow until the angel appears and says, I've got what you've been praying for. Which makes Zechariah's hopelessness all the more poignant. I mean, shouldn't have he, of all people, relished in this wondrous news? Perhaps it sounded too good to be true, too far-fetched, too outside the bounds of what is and isn't possible. But God doesn't dwell in the land of possibility. God instead delights in impossible possibility. As I have said more times than I can count, God is the one who makes a way where there is no way. It's silly, really. I mean, it's like June laughing at Eric during the children's message, kind of funny. This gospel story, this Advent story, it is silliness. I mean, new life among a couple on the verge of retirement? God, the author of the cosmos, saying, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a baby. We never would have come up with this on our own. I mean, this is just silliness. But God has a sense of humor. God sets Zechariah on a journey, an adventure, in which his greatest joy will not come from what he can do, but from what God will do. And that's what faith is all about. It's the series that we have. It's called The Adventure of Faith. The Adventure of Faith. Now, we might imagine that faith is found in the doing, the habits, the rituals, lighting candles, singing songs, the outward expression of, of, of these desires that we have. And to some extent, that's true. But faith, at its most fundamental, foundational level, faith is just trust. It's just trust. But trust is only possible through relationships, through time, through experience. Zechariah? Even though he did all the things he was supposed to do, even as a priest with the responsibility of prayers and doxology, he didn't have the trust. He didn't put his faith in the only one who could make anything and everything happen. But the best news of the story, and I, I mean this, the very best news of this story is that even though Zechariah doesn't believe that John will arrive, John still comes. That is one of the most understated glories of faith. The good news is not contingent on our belief. God will make good on the promise whether we believe it or not. Which is all just another way of saying that if you ever doubt, that's okay. It happens to all of us. 
But God does not make God's self manifest to us only when we have the belief meter high enough. God arrives whether we believe it or not, which is why, weirdly enough, during Advent, we can relax. We can relax. Because the world doesn't turn on us. If our hope was to be found in us alone, then our hope wouldn't be worth much of anything. All you need to do is spend five minutes on the internet to know that we are not capable of anything but bad news. But our hope isn't in us. Our hope is in the one who is born to us and for us. Advent is a time in which God gives us permission to rest in the silliness of salvation of the wild and wondrous ways in which God chooses the strangest people through the strangest means to bring good news in a world of bad news. God will arrive in the manger. God will come again, whether we deserve it or not. In fact, actually, God will do this because we don't deserve it. God will do this because we need it. God's got the gift. The only thing we need is the trust, the hope, the faith, the open hands to receive the gift. Perhaps that's why it's good to begin Advent with communion. Consider this meal prepared. God offers this strange meal to us without cost, without earning or deserving. All of the best gifts in our lives, they come as gifts, not rewards. Now Santa, Santa might be making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice, but guess what? God don't roll that way. That's not how God works. Because the real truth is we're all on the naughty list. We've all done things we shouldn't. We've all avoided doing the things we know we should do. Every one of us is kind of like Zechariah, limiting our hope to what we think is and isn't possible. Which is why, like Zechariah, sometimes we're afraid of God. But we don't have to be. Advent is the glorious reminder that we don't have to be afraid of God. I, I really like the way that Robert Capon puts it. He says, sometimes we think God is like our mother-in-law who shows up once a year to check to see if her wedding present china has been chipped or even used at all. But, Capon notes, God is actually not like our mother-in-law. God is like our funny old uncle who shows up all the time, often unannounced. He's got a salami under one arm, something to drink under the other, and all he wants is to rejoice. God comes with hope. Hope for tomorrow. Hope that we can scarcely fathom. A hope that can leave us speechless. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever.